Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. This episode is brought to you by Marv Bands. The Marv Band is the next big thing in player development. Marv Training's patented handle design allows for more muscle activation and additional exercises, including movement prep for hitters. This makes it the go-to tool for arm care and hitting activation. Use code AOTC for 10% off of team sets and check it out at www.marvtraining.com. Today we have on the 2018 World Series champion, Andy Barquette. Andy was an assistant major league hitting coach with the Boston Red Sox in 2018 and 2019. And on the show, we talk about how to earn trust with our players, why learning their routines is super important, and we discuss game planning, approach, and why Andy thinks that hitting coaches are basically part-time psychologists. He also has a professional learning course that just came out called Foundations of Coaching Professional Hitters that I will link in the show notes. That is definitely something that you'll want to check out. Here is Andy Barquette. Andy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Definitely, and, and I appreciate you coming on the show and, and really sharing sharing some awesome, awesome experiences with us. And for the listeners, I, I'd like to encourage you guys to hit the subscribe button below so you don't miss any great episodes such as this one. And I'd also love it if you guys could rate and review just to help get the word out and, and highlight the amazing guests that we have. But Andy, I, I know that that our listeners would love to get to know you a little bit better. So if you don't mind, can you give us a short snapshot of your baseball background and why you decided to get into coaching? Sure. Uh, Goodness, short snapshot might be difficult, but I'll do the best I can. Um, I played uh, collegiately, well, grew up in Miami, Florida, played collegiately at North Carolina State University and signed as a non-drafted free agent um, on a co-op team, which co-op teams no longer exist uh, in Butte, Montana. Um, It was in the Pioneer League where half the team were, not half, but maybe a third of the team were college seniors. The rest of the team were loaned there from other organizations, hence the Mm co-op. Um, so I was signed by Major League Baseball, a guy named Roy Krasick, who actually still works for MLB. Actually, I got a chance to see him in the uh, ALCS in, in Houston a few years ago. It's pretty nice. cool. We got to take a picture on the field. So the Texas Rangers actually uh, signed me out of there. Um, and I ended up thinking I was just going to play, you know, one short season and, and, and go back and get a college. I had my master's degree and be a coach in college. And um, 11 years later and a cup of coffee in the big leagues, I met. You know, that was my playing career. I got out of baseball and had a short stint as an unsuccessful financial advisor uh, during a, the recession in 06, 07, 08 at that time. And ended up getting back into coaching. I uh, went to, for an interview to be a hitting coach with the Detroit Tigers and, and walked out a manager of Oneana, which was in, in New York Penn League. And so nice. I started managing that year and managed um, – you know, I think nine years in the minor leagues, four in double A, one in triple A, and the other four in eight ball. I uh, was a hitting assistant hitting coordinator a couple of years, and then I had an opportunity to um, become a major league coach and uh, assistant hitting coach for the Boston Red Sox. And we ended up winning the World Series in 2018, which was, a, you know, obviously a dream come true. And, and then obviously didn't have a, as great a year as a team in 2019. We still offensively did a good job. But, you know, a big market in Boston uh, when the team doesn't do well there's changes to be made. So uh, I was uh, a victim of one of those changes and 
And so this past year, I um, was still under contract with the Red Sox. So I volunteered at the University of Central Florida, which is where my daughter plays college soccer. And about 10 minutes from my house, I know the coaching staff very well. And was doing that and having a ball doing it. We were having a really good year. And then the COVID-19 hit and then the season ended. So uh, that's kind of the snapshot, I guess. And then why I got into coaching, uh, just along the way, you know, um, a high school coach of mine, uh, just kind of had, I had some issues, family issues in high school and so forth. And, you know, he was just always there for me and, and just, you know, really took an interest in me and really was a competitor and wanted to win and just taught me a lot. So I think about him a lot and just kind of wanting to do what he did for players and, and, and helping guys out who maybe have some distress in their lives. And then, um, my freshman year at NC State, I had some academic issues and got actually kicked off the team. And uh, Kansas City Royals general manager Dayton Moore was my summer league coach in the Shenandoah Valley League in Winchester, wow. Virginia. And he took me in and, and basically believed in me and, and turned my life around or helped me turn my life around at that point and took an interest in, in me. And so I guess my why in coaching is that there's people along the way that uh, when I've kind of been down and trodden, have, you know, coaches have put their arms, you know, around me and, and pick me back up. And, and, and so I just along the way wanted to do that for, for my players and, mm-hmm. you know, really uh, people in the industry, a lot of times, especially nowadays, numbers are so important and players can be, you know, labeled as this and labeled as that. And, and uh, so the human element is really interesting to me and players at every level of the minor leagues have issues off the field with families and, and different situations. Mm-hmm. So uh, they need mentors, advocates, people that will help them and, and speak greatness into them. And so that's kind of my mission, I guess you could say. I love that. And, and uh, again, I love hearing your background just because I think that it gives us a, an idea of, of where you come from and, and how you coach now, because we're, we're all a product of our circumstances to a certain degree. And so um, let's rewind a little bit. And, and again, you, I think you're the first guest to, that's got a World Series ring, or at least a, a recent one. And so that's really, really cool. And, and so uh, one thing that, that I'm always curious about is what separated the 2018 team. And I, I think that, that there's so many factors that go into winning a World Series. But then you can look back and you go, man, this is what was different about that team. What, what would a couple of those things be? Uh, I would say the 2018 team, um, and I've spoke about this a few times, was kind of like baseball utopia. You have some of the greatest talent in the league uh, playing together, some of the greatest players in the league playing together, uh, which could bring, you know, just on paper issues just because of egos or whatever. But on that club, you had these superstar players, and they all put their egos aside, and you had a collective culture of learning growing and working together that was just um i mean sometimes i would just feel so being in the batting cage just like just so blessed and humble to be a part of it just to see you know jd martinez and and mookie and 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 rafael devers and mitch moreland and brock hold and ian kinsler just all sitting around the cage just talking hitting and, you know, egos checked at the door, everybody trying to help everybody. Um, you know, it, it was just, a, it was collective learning. There was no, Tim Hires and I, the, the two hitting coaches, we, it wasn't like he was head hitting coach and I was assisting, even though that was our role. It was like we were co-hitting coaches. 
and we created this batting cage culture uh, by accident with a with a Bose speaker that Mookie bought, uh, just playing everybody's playlist, and that's would, would would spin conversations, and then hitting you know JD is very analytical, loves to talk hitting, so that spins conversations, and you just have a bunch of guys getting to know each other, care about each other, and then helping each other. And at one point, I remember peeking in the video room and seeing a young rap, rookie, Raphael Devers, and a veteran, Mitch Moreland, who, who can barely speak each other's language. And they're going over video, and it's like, I don't even need to get involved in that conversation. You know, it's like the players are coaching each other. We're kind of facilitating their growth. Um, and so, and then when the game, when the bell rang, we realized how good we were and what we could do. And it was just like, uh, once everybody realized that and then realized kind of this culture and communication that we had, it was just, we're, we're just going to keep pushing forward and keep working and put our head down. That was the other thing was that these guys grinded. I mean, every day, nobody took a day off. Nobody took a day off mentally from the advanced scouts, uh, in our, in our preparation, our hitting hitters meetings. Uh, in our in our analyzation of the opposing pitcher, uh, obviously from an offensive perspective, and then you know preparing in the before the games, the, the preparation was tailored to that night's starter, and the conversation was tailored to that night's starter. So uh, just the mentality uh, was was just team. And then we got into you know, hitters meetings, and it would just talk. talk we talk about passing the baton. We talk about one through nine and that grinding out at bats and you might not get to hit tonight, but make this guy work, make him throw nine, 10 pitches. And then he's going to get tired and leave something up for Mookie. I mean, Jackie Bradley hit ninth most of that year and just hit over 200 was probably the most valuable guy in our lineup because if Jackie had a good at bat. Then that set the stage for the top of the order to do damage. If Jackie got on base and then, woo, that was a big time bonus. So mm -hmm. everybody, everybody in the lineup was important and everybody knew that and nobody cared about their numbers. These guys did not speak about numbers, did not talk about numbers, did not talk about money, did not talk about nothing. It was all about winning games. It was just, it was really, I'm not sure if it, anything like that can ever happen again in baseball, but uh, if it does, I hope I'm a part of it. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, again, another thing is trying to, to like bottle that up and sustain it year to year. And, uh, you know, uh, is, is there, is there any advice that you could give? Because it, uh, it seems like, it seems like it, it's obviously it's really hard to win two in a row. Like it's extremely hard because you have players that change, you have the culture that, and when the players go in and come and, and the, the culture changes a little bit, but let's say that you and I are on staff together and we win a world series in 2018, knowing what you know now, how how would you would there be a way that you could structure 2019 to try and replicate that any differently or is it just does it have to happen organically with the players I mean it, it, if you've got the core of the team that that's kind of the same it's just I'm just trying to figure out like teams that sustain excellence over time are very rare especially at, at the highest level of, of any sport and it's just so interesting to try and see what how that dynamic changes uh, year to year even when you have some of the some of the same players. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to repeat it. And actually, um, I had some opportunities to interview for other jobs and decided to stay in Boston and, and turn down the interviews just because I wanted to have a chance to repeat. I thought that we had a core group of, of players and, and pitchers to, to repeat. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one thing that I learned is that there's to win a World Series, there's collateral damage to your pitching staff. Uh, those guys just, I mean, they, they – go above and beyond the call of duty 
to post and give you innings and um, are just warriors. But that also comes with a price. And, you know, the following year, there's no guarantee that that pitching staff is going to be able to maintain the level of excellence that they had the year before. As well, you know, there's free agency involved in baseball. Uh, we had guys uh, coming arbitration for the first time or, or, con- or people becoming free agents. And so guys who uh, had opt-ins or opt-outs and, and so forth. And so those conversations um, I noticed were more prevalent in 2019. And so I, I just saw a different side. I kind of, I guess my first year I thought, okay, this is just how it is. These guys just, mm-hmm. but then there's the reality of baseball that I already knew, but I guess was a little bit, you know, because it was such a special year and it was none of those things were ever really talked about. Um, it, I, I guess to, to replicate, it's difficult. It really is just because, um, you know, there's guys that in the game that want to get paid and, and I don't, you know, I don't have anything against that. They should. That's just the mindset. Though, the, you know, when the mindset is all about the team and people's numbers are there, when the mindset becomes about myself, then little then in bats might change. You might swing at that 3-1 slide in the dirt because you're cheating instead of, you know, maybe seeing the ball and, and really your concentration level being off a little bit because you're trying to get that RBI instead of passing the baton to the next guy. When you have a team mentality, uh, you, you might take the walk there and, and, and let the next guy drive the run in instead of you trying to force something to happen. So that's just a small example of how, you know, trying to put up numbers and trying to get mine, so to speak, can change the outcome of the team. And I think that even though we had a really good year offensively, I think we had some guys putting pressure on themselves uh, for, for to have great years. And, um, and then the pitching staff wasn't doing great. And so when that happens, then there's more pressure on the offense and, and so forth. So to, to, you know, script it to do it another year um i think that it, it's really difficult that the conversations right away need to you know, have happen that gentlemen this is what we did last year and this is why and uh you know everybody had great years and if we do that again everybody's going to get paid and there's you know everybody's going to be fine but i think that just the human element sometimes and i wouldn't call it greed i would just call it you know economics and baseball they know that if they put up big numbers they're going to get big money human nature and so it's hard to not think about that, especially when you have agents and the media and talking about it. With. So, um, you know, see guys plus 12 to 15 in the minor leagues are going to come up and help all mm-hmm. collectively pulling on the same rope. We had that in 2018, and it's possible to have in the big leagues. Um, but, again, it's hard to maintain, I feel like, number one, because having a steady flow of, of arms that you can – that you can give guys breaks and or they're going to come in and pick up some innings for you is one factor. And the other factor is managing the, the personalities and, and the, the want to try to set your family up and make money. It's, it's something very real in the game, but something obviously that has to be harnessed as well. Oh, for sure. And, and so doing some research about you with some different guys that have worked with you in the past, I, one being Darren Finster, who, who I love to death. He talked about how you did a great job of gaining trust with players and how you were an asset and an advocate for them. And again, for our listeners who, who want a, a little bit of background, you're working with some of the best guys in the world. And so it's not like you're talking about getting you know your foot down early and you're talking swing mechanics all the time. And they've already had, you know, 25 years of baseball experiences uh, and then they get to you. 
some of them, whether that's free agency or, or minor leagues or, or whatever. And so for, for the coaches that are listening, who really just, they want to help get to the heart and the core of a player and to be able to have that said about them, what were some intentional ways that you went about that? And I, I know that it starts with the relationships and that's basically what we're talking about it, but you could be, you could have a good relationship with a guy and he, and he still may not trust you with, with a ton of advice, but you've been able to have both. And so talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, how you were intentional about that and then kind of what your process is and, and just, you know, just kind of walk us through what you would do meeting a new player and just getting to know them and, and making sure that they knew that, that you had their back at all times. Yeah, I think, um, you know, establishing trust is super important and you're being able to do that with superstar players, um, basically going about it the same way I did it in my league as a manager, um, being transparent, not trying to act like I was somebody that I wasn't, not trying to act like I had all the answers. Uh, there were many times when I would get a question from a player and I would say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. Mookie, what do you think about this? Or JD, what, what do you think about that? And I think that, that they realized that I was real and I wasn't trying to be somebody that I wasn't or, or act like I knew something that I didn't. Um, but, you know, getting to know the player, asking about their family. When they walk in the batting cage, I was more like a psychologist most of the time than, than a swing coach. Um, Tim Hires did a great job, you know, working on their mechanics and, and, uh, I, you know, know how to study video and break down a swing and all those things. But at the same time, when you're dealing with, you know, players, their mind is, it needs to be harnessed. If their thoughts are all over the place or their thoughts are on their wife and the argument that they got into on the way to the ballpark that day, or the kid that's sick, that's got a high fever that they left at home or their parents are something going on back in their hometown, you know, they walk in, you can see by their body language that something's burdening them. And when those guys would walk in 12, 13 of them a day, one at a time, we only have one cage in Fenway. So they had to come through Tim and I, you know, and every day I got to interact with them and find out what the heartbeat was. Um, you find out what's going on. And then you try to maybe give them some advice and, and, or let them just talk about it and just be, a voice to um, share what's going on in their hearts and their mind. It might be something to do with baseball, their swing, their pressure, their performance, whatever it is. And then once that was able to get out, then it was like, all right, man, let's get to work. You know, Garrett Cole's on the mound tonight. We got four seeds coming out our belly button. So, you know, and they start talking about the, the pitcher and maybe talking about some physical things that, that Tim and I noticed on the video. They have to know that you're invested in their careers and they're, and you're invested in their swings and they're invested in their at bats. So, Doing your homework on the players, doing your homework, being prepared every day, I think is huge. When players come in, and especially major league players, high level minor league or major league players, you know they're sharp. They're they're watching us as coaches. They want to know if we know what the hell we're talking about, know if we're prepared or not. And so, if you're just trying to wing it, they're going to sniff that out. If you if you're trying to be about yourself and, and show how smart you are, they're going to sniff that out. So being transparent, being prepared, uh, being vulnerable, um, and then, you know, obviously sharing information, um, sharing stories, sharing things that connect with them. Uh, the, when I worked for the Pirates, I talked about grabbing coins, finding out what makes that player tick, mm -hmm. finding out what music he like, what's his playlist. That, that little speaker that Mookie bought us was so valuable for that team 
just from my own perspective as a coach, because I would have their playlist on my phone, and when they would come in, I would switch it to their music from, you know, a Chris Brown to a Eric Church from Mookie to, to Mitch Moreland. And when Mitch was singing Eric Church songs, I knew that we were in, we were in good shape. I knew that his That's mind was off the family at that point and off his home issues, and he was present and mm-hmm. relaxed and chill and in his you know in his um, routine. And so I, I always tell Tim, when you see them singing their songs, you, we know that they're in a good spot. And so, um, you know, that's just some ways that we were able to really connect with those guys. Um, and it was, I guess, edifying to know, because I'd done it through the minor leagues and had good experiences working with, uh, with players and always had pretty much, for the most part, good relationships with my players and, and maintain those relationships even after they, were, they had gone to the next level. So... To see that it was you're able to, to replicate that in the big leagues was just gave me um, confidence as a coach that I, I I can coach some of the best players in the world and and the way that I do things works. Well, for sure, and and again with with guys that you've mentioned, uh, and, and again, and I see this from the outside in, and and you got to to work every single day with with JD and Mookie, and and we'll have some listeners that are uh, still playing, and so. What separated those guys? And and let's just take talent out of the equation because you've seen Mookie literally probably be the best at every sport that he could possibly imagine being, like dunking basketballs and world bowling tour and and whatnot. And then then you got JD who completely has to you know revamp his swing and not easy to do and and, and is now one of the best in the world. Um, and so what separated those guys from guys that are on the verge of that? And and I, I guess this is more geared towards players uh, that, that are going to be listening to this, but what really set those guys apart? Uh, I guess that their tireless um, work ethic, their search daily for greatness there, there was no complacency. Uh, I mean, JD would hit during the games, for example, and he'd be, you know, two for three with two homers and a walk. And he would be like, hey, bro, let's go set the machine up for sliders because this guy's going to come and throw me sliders and start them at my chest. And I want them breaking like this. And I became an expert at the hack attack because we would, we would um, shake the pitches of the, of the guy, the reliever coming in or, or the starter for that night. But, and he would be trying to simulate the at-bat to hit his third homer that night. You know, like he, there was no – I remember as a player, if I was two for three with a walk and two homers, I'd be on the bench like, you know, laughing, joking around, having a good time, you know, just, oh, I'll get to my next at bat. This dude was like laser focused. Like mm-hmm. that next at bat was just as important if he had punched out three times. He didn't take it any differently. There was this, this, this laser focus every day of, of and every at bat, one at bat at a time as well. Uh, Mookie just, you know, he wants to be great. Uh, you, if you watch the last dance, uh, everybody's been watching about Michael Jordan, the, the, um, the work ethic. I mean, Mookie was in the cage every day, sometimes two and three times he would come down to the cage to the point where we'd be like, dude, you're fine. Like, get out of here. You know? Um, I remember he was leading the league by 30 points uh, in hitting in, in 18 and we were in Detroit and during the game he kept coming in because he couldn't feel it. He was wearing me out. And I'm like, this guy's leading the American League in hitting by 30 points and he, <laughs> he won't stop trying to figure it out. I just did their, their search for greatness that sometimes was a little bit of a detriment because they were trying, working so hard to be great uh, that, you know, it was, 
I think sometimes mentally, you know, sometimes draining on them, but they loved it. They embraced uh, wanting to, to work so hard. And, uh, you know, like the KVS guy came in town and we were, hey guys, who wants to get their KVS checked or whatever and get, and get, and put the KVS on and, and, and check your readings out. And those are the only two guys that came down, you know, like okay. early because they had to be there early to do it. And so, I mean, like whenever we had an early hitting, hey, cage, cages today at one, those two, two, two guys were the first two there. Then they'd come in before That's BP. Awesome. I mean, it was just, it was just constant. Um, and then doing the different drills. I mean, we did all types. JD would bring a bag of tricks on the road and, and, uh, and we <laughs> would use that, all, man. yeah, we would use all different types of stuff, but it didn't matter because, you know, Hey, he's making $24 million. People can laugh at him all he wants. These things help him give him a feel to be great. And so, um, you know, those guys just went over and above what it took to, uh, to be great. And it was just, and it didn't matter from game one, to the last game of the world series, the grind was the same. So it was just really impressive to work with them. And I just felt, you know, humbled to be a part of it. I learned a lot from both of them too, you know, just, yeah. um, how to teach players like that. And then JD, JD could be a hitting coach on, I mean, he'd have to take a huge pay cut, but he'd have to, he could be a hitting coach on any team in the big leagues and get a really good Sure. Point. Yeah. You guys basically had three with him. No doubt. That's for sure. <laughs> So, uh, with, within the game plan a- aspect, you've mentioned it a couple of times and, and that's something that me personally, that I know that I want to get better at because I've never had the access to the amount of data that you have whenever you get into professional baseball. And that's a big part of it, right? You want to, mm-hmm. like you said, you want to make sure that you're prepared. So the players are prepared and you want to try and, and, and just give them the best idea of how to approach, uh, the picture that they're seeing on any given night. And so just it's overwhelming the amount of stuff that they could look at. So what is, what is a way that you helped with the simplification process and just going, Hey guys, I mean, like you talked with Garrett Cole, you're, you're going to get four seams at your belly button, you know, and we're going to try and replicate that with the hack attack. Uh, but just what's, what would your advice be for me and for the other guys that, that want to get better at this aspect of it? And, and for the high school and college coaches that are listening, uh, I, I, you know, I want to ask a selfish question here with all of that, but I think it does play into, okay, let's simplify and let's truly get down to what matters and what's going to help them to beat this guy on the bump. Uh, but what would your advice be for that? Well, number one, my advice would be if I had to look back at my own career as a coach, I, 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 I took game planning for granted um, because, you know, when I was a, a player, I really didn't want to know too much information. I just wanted to watch the guy and beat the guy. And that was actually um, not smart. Um, now knowing what I know now, uh, I, I would have studied pitchers and opposing pitchers a lot more in the minor leagues and gotten better at game planning. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's crucial, especially um, high school, to do college. You can definitely use their video systems and pick up a ton of things. Um, and, you know, they don't have heat maps necessarily, but they have enough information, especially with all the things that I learned in Boston, that you can develop very comprehensive game plans to beat the opposing pitcher. Tim Hires like to talk about hitting coaches now as offensive coordinators. Hitting coaches is just part of it. But really being able to prepare to beat that pitcher that night, you know, if you can pick up a tip, um, you know, on him and his delivery or to, to, you know, either eliminate a pitch or know when a pitch is coming, or if you can pick up a tendency, or if you can eliminate that, hey, the four seamers above the zone, 
are not, there's no damage being done there. We have to see the ball down. Or if a guy that, that you know, lives down and when he comes up, he gets hammered, then we've got to see the ball up. Like finding out that information can give players, you know, something to focus on and something to, instead of, you know, we have all these reports, but reading all that to a player, players won't hear all that. They want to hear, okay, tell me what I need to, you know, stay away from. What's mm-hmm. this? And want to do, you know, some hunt. We want, we want guys who are on the attack. And um, in order for that to happen, you need to know what the, the weakness is. If we're playing football, I need to know what part of this defense that I can attack with my offense. And it's mm-hmm. the same in, in facing a pitcher. And so you have to learn about the pitcher. You have to watch a video on the pitcher. You have to see uh, what the pitcher does to get people out, where his stuff is, is most, you know, live, where his stuff is a little bit weaker, and then present that to your club. Now, it's fluid. It always can change because, you know, especially when you're facing the Red Sox, a guy may throw 3% change-ups on the, on the sheet, but he might throw 20% change-ups that night because mm-hmm. he, knows, he knows that we know that, he, that we might eliminate the change-up. So, uh, but just, I guess, being prepared and then, to your point, translating it. Because, like, when Devers would come in, and, I, and I'm bilingual, I speak Spanish, he would come in and be like, yo, bro, you know, what's this guy got? You know what I mean? And if I was going to say, oh, well, his heat map says that there's no slug here, and, like, he's going to be like, you look at me like I'm crazy, you know? So I would be like, hey, bro, anything down, leave it alone. You see it up and away from you, hammer it. Let it go. So you have to – and that simple – Spanish explanation to him was based upon an hour's worth of work to translate mm-hmm. this information to him. So, because obviously we have analysts and we have all types of numbers now and all types of metrics and they're great, but being able to translate that to a guy from Mississippi or a guy from Samana Dominican Republic is equally important to be able to speak their language and be able to connect with that player to give him the information so he can have his best chance for success. You all, I don't want to say always been bilingual, but is that something that you learned as you got older? Uh, well, I come up, I grew up um, in Miami and my mom's side of the family's uh, Cuban descent. So okay. I, I heard it growing up. Uh, I knew the basics. I played in a little league in Miami called Flag Amy Corey League where nobody spoke English. Uh, okay. ex- even if you wanted to order a Coke at the concession stand that lady didn't speak any English so Mm -hmm. um, I I, I had the basis for it and then um, going and playing winter ball my first year uh, I just kind of immersed myself in Dominican Republic and was hanging out with Dave Ortiz before he was big poppy Mm -hmm. Um, just just I didn't realize how much I knew and then just started speaking it all the time and then when I got back home after three months of being in Latin America I'm like wow I'm kind of bilingual now and just kept practicing and practicing. And <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so I'd say I'm about 90, 90, 95% bilingual. That's wonderful. I, it's not something that's easy. I, I, it has been one of my most frustrating ventures over the past year, year and a half. And it's like, it's important and I try, but it's just, it's so vast that it, it, it can be fr- frustrating at times. But with the players routines, it's interesting because again, you have the MVP candidate and then you've got, a potential, you know, a potential star in a, in a 20 year or a 20 year old kid who's coming up to the big leagues for the first time. And you've got to uh, really try and figure out where you can help and some more than others and different aspects and whatnot. And so uh, with, especially with routines, 
what was your, what was your process on getting them, getting to understand what they were? Because again, this was something that, that was brought up of, you can literally tell everyone's routine that was on the team in 2018, 2019 to a T to like the time that they showed up. And, and that's important to you and to them because that way you don't have to ask. And that way you can just roll and you can move the L screen. And you're like, man, this, you know, Andy's Andy remembers exactly what I'm doing every single day. And I don't have to tell him <laughs> that that's important to me and to him. So that's, that's really cool. So that's another trust, uh, trust, uh, like trust binder, I guess. But what was kind of, what was your process uh, in learning those one and then uh, getting to know why they did what they did? Because you may have some guys that really had just done it just because they did it for no reason. And you're like, uh, eh, you know, maybe you should try this. Does that, is that, did that ever come up with the players that you worked with? Because I, I I'm, it, I'm just kind of spitballing at the moment. Yeah. I'll, I mean, all the time actually. And, and you know, just your first part of your question you got to find out what makes the players tick, what they like doing. And that was, you know, I think the first question when Tim and I got there in 2018, when the players would come into cage in spring training, Hey, what do you like to do? What do you, what's your gig? What, what kind of routine do you like? And um, so we, I just took it upon myself to learn those. I, I tried to put myself and, and be empathetic and, and be like a player's perspective. If I was a player, what would I want from this guy? And so I just wanted to try to serve them as best I could and show them that we were there for them and that we, we were there to do whatever we needed to do to help them get better and feel comfortable. Uh, sometimes we, we did things to make them feel uncomfortable to your point. Like if, uh, Hey, why don't you try this in the routine today? Why don't you try that? And, and I remember, you know, Mitch and I were, were really close during those two years and, and still are friends, but, we got into it a couple of times because I would say, Hey man, I, I think your front side is really breaking down. We need to do some drills on the front side. And he wanted nothing to do with that. And we would argue about it. And then he might come in a week later and say, Hey man, I'd like to do some drills with the front side. And I'd say, okay, no problem. You know? So, um, you know, being honest and sharing what you, was on your heart or what you what was on your mind. I mean, we all have experiences in the game. Don't be afraid to share them with those guys. If you're ever around superstars, uh, they respect you. If they, you know that you're going to give them something, they want to know. Heck, I remember Ian Kinsler, who was a uh, joined our club at the deadline, who's a you know obviously veteran major league all star, and and I was hesitant to to say stuff to him. And one day I was flipping, and he's like, he's like, you see something? And I was like, eh, you know, he's mm-hmm. like, what do you got? What do you like? He was like, give it to me. And I'm like, well, this, this, and this. He's like, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of feeling that. And he's like, let me try something. And I'm like, okay, what are you, what are you going to try? And then here comes the conversation. And I, mm-hmm. I was kind of kicking myself. I love like, that. Don't, don't be afraid of Ian Kinsler. Don't be afraid to, 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 to share what you're thinking. Because you know what? Obviously, he wants to know. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get better. He's trying to perform that night. And he wants the information. Um, so getting to know the routines, I'm big on cage efficiency, not wasting time in there. We had one cage in Boston. It was tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, a lot of hitters that like to work. And so to be able to get guys in and out by the, by the time our hitters meeting started, by the time we had BP was a challenge. So it was important for me to be um, on point and know exactly what each guy wanted. Uh, we, we used the Valley shield, which is, I feel like is the best um, L screen or oh, those uh, are super yeah. good. They're super good. They're, they're super efficient to move around and mm-hmm. set up. So like, you know, JD was flips. It was, it was a whole flip routine, one hands, uh, short bat, 
And then, you know, who knows what he might bring out of his bag of tricks that day, but it was basically based upon flips. And then Mookie, Mookie was kind of anti-flip and would sit and throw. So when, when JD would leave, the Valley Shield got moved back to the, to, I had a little mark on the, on the turf on, you know, where mm-hmm. I sat and threw from. I got my chair from the back of the cage. I put on a little, a little L screen, uh, a little uh, left-handed throwing thing on the side of the cage and move the balls. And then here we go. Mookie's routine. And then here comes Devers and Devers might be flips or overhands and, and, uh, and so forth. And I'd say, what do you want today, bro? I want that to stay there. I want those sit and throws. And then Mitch was flips. Mitch didn't like sit and throws. So then it was change the setup, get it right back to flips. And, and so just keep the guys moving in and out, keep them happy. I called it the barbershop. You know, nice. I know how to cut everybody's hair. I know what everybody's haircut uh, is like. And, and so when they come in, I'm prepared and we're going to cut their hair and make them look good and make them feel good when they walk out. Well, consider the barbershop stolen. I like that. You got the music blaring with the playlist and you got, you got your, your vitamins that they're getting every single day and their haircuts. I love it. And okay. So another thing that comes up too, uh, with, with that is, um, what, what if you have a player who's, who maybe you're just not connecting with. And, and I think that, that, that it's something that, that comes up from time to time is, and it's just, maybe it's personality, maybe it's background, maybe it's culturally, but you, you've really tried, like you've tried to empathize, you've tried to do your best, but it's just, it, maybe he, like, for instance, with you, maybe he liked Tim more than you, or maybe you liked, he liked you more than Tim. And it's just something that you're just like, ah, man, I, I don't know really how to, to work with this dynamic, but with guys like that, I, obviously you don't, you don't take it personally, but how do you help, how do you help guys like that, that may not may not be bought into you personally or may not be bought into a drill that you're doing and just how do you how do you try and help with that um well actually you know and that that i'm not going to get into names but that 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 happened i mean that's part of the deal you're not going to make uh, you're not going to be popular with with everybody and so um you know number one it takes communication and uh there was a player we had in boston over the two years there was that i was there that I think there was a mutual respect, but we just, for some reason, could never get on the same page. Sure. And, you know, and there was times I sat with him, hey, man, listen, you know, I'm here to help you. I'm here to make you better. So whatever you need from me, you know, just let me know. Um, so just, you know, allow, get, letting him know that, that you're there for him for whatever reason, your personalities may not mesh. Um, and, and, you know, you may not work all that well together. And maybe they want to work with Tim that day, but... At the end of the day, Tim and I, we were both, our egos were checked at the door. So we wanted to win games and we wanted to uh, help these guys get better. And we both, we were, we're, we're very different in lots of ways, but I think we, we worked very well together because we were the same when it came to that. But there was no ego involved here. So if, sure. if uh, Rafi wants to work with Tim that day uh, and he wants to kick me out of the cage as the flip guy, you know, fine. I'm good with that because I'm going to sit here and cheer Rafi on from the side. Or I'm going to go look at video of the starter while Tim's doing that or, you know, make the, make the most out of the time so that we can help get the player better. But yeah, that's going to happen. I think that as long as you keep the lines of communication open with the player and, you know, the player knows that you're trying to do whatever it takes to make him better, um, then that's really all you can do. At the end of the day, it's his career and he's going to have to go perform on the field. And so, uh, whatever you just, you need to let them know that you're there for them and you're there to serve them and whatever, you know, within reason, obviously that, that you can do to make them better that you're going to do. Right. And, and not to, 
not to throw that as like a, a you prefer this guy to this guy, but it's also, you know, with college and amateur guys, you they also have guys that they're working with on the side too, that they, you know, that they may be working on something that they prefer better. And uh, again, it's, I thought you put that so eloquently of, Hey, check your ego at the door, make sure you know that they're, that you're there for them and, and that you love them, care for them and you'll do what, what they need to do to make them better. Cause it's their career. But yeah, I, I, I didn't mean that to be like a, like a highest level thing, but I think that we've all dealt with that. And I think that that's, that's something that's valid for, for all of us, because I know that I've gone through that and no matter how hard we try, it's like, man, it's just for one reason or another, you know, but another thing that, that is, that is an interesting thing uh, and an interesting dynamic is, is you've got a long season and there's going to be some really bad stretches for everyone. And so how do you deal, how do you help the players to deal with those stretches? So let's say that you're trying to help me and I'm like 0 for 20 with 15 punch outs. I'm not seeing the ball well. I'm trying everything in the cage. I'm, I'm looking in JD's bag for Frisbees and, and Chuck it dog toys. And I'm, I've tried it all. And I'm just like, Andy, I don't, what, what do I do? Like, I'm just swimming in my head right now. I've, I've tried everything. Cause I, I think that we all, uh, all as players went through that, but how do you, how do you help with that? Well, I think being positive, being encouraging, um, sharing stories about yourself as a player. Hey man, I remember one time I went over seven in a game and I swung at the first pitch all seven times, which is actually true. And, uh, you know, just sharing things that you can relate to, to a, to a guy, um, you know, uh, I, I share, uh, I shared a story uh, one time about Christian Yelich where he was playing for me in double A and, and I told him he could hit in the big leagues one day. And uh, I go, you can hit in the big leagues right now. I'm like, dude, you're ready. He was 20. Mm-hmm. And he kind of looked at me like this. And then next day he got a game winning hit. And he said, you know that when you told me that I was over 33 and I was like, <laughs> I had no idea the kid was over 33, uh, but um, uh, you know, during the grind of a season, it's, it's, you know, it's hard. Um, it's a grind to travel. The big leagues, people think, oh, the private planes and, you know, the, the beautiful hotels and, and all that. So you live in the good life and the great food and all that stuff is legitimate. I mean, you do obviously travel very nicely compared to the minor leagues. But what I did find was the grind was the same. The feeling of, man, geez, we're in this city and we're facing this guy and we were just in the six game stretch. And, and so it's like the grind never stops. And to keep guys going, hey, man, let's go. Keep them pumped up. Keep the vibe going in the cage. Like uh, if you see a guy's body language, hey, you know, you're, you're a good player, man. You can hit just like the Christian Yelich thing. That was the point. It was like you, you can hit in the big leagues right now. Like you, you've, been, you've done this before. You've been here before. You know, you, you're, you were an MVP last year or whatever it is. Like you, you're, you're a bad man. Um, getting them to believe in themselves. I mean, uh, for me, the best pitcher in baseball is self-doubt. And he'll get you out all the time if you let him. And Mm -hmm. so um, trying to step in and battle a player's self-doubt as an advocate with him every day is is really your job through 144, 162. Uh, Because that guy is very real, whether you're a minor league manager or a head college coach. um, Sometimes we forget that the game is hard. And as human Mm -hmm. beings, we doubt ourselves. And that's just whether you, you cut hair for a living or you play major league baseball, you, you wonder if you're dressed, if you look good, if you smell good, if you're going to do a good job that day. Um, and so we all have that. And recognizing one thing I, I learned about major league players is that they have it too. Sometimes you think that they don't because they're good looking, they're rich, they're in good shape. They got, you know, 
um, beautiful wives and families and, and they're on TV and they're famous. So you think that, Hey, they, they believe in themselves all the time. What I, what I realized about major league players is they're just as human as you and me. And they doubt themselves just like you and me. And so when they're going through a tough stretch, that hurts them just like it did if they were an A-ball player or a Division II college player. So as, our, as a coach, you have a choice. Do I ignore it? Do I uh, shake my head and judge them? Or do I get in there and try to encourage them and try to make them better somehow, some way? And so uh, with big leaguers, I found myself pumping them up and giving them, you know, as you're throwing BP and you know that they're struggling, you've seen them doing it right. Yeah, that a boy, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, just the, the positive encouragement was something that uh, I realized that they needed, especially through 162 and then, you know, 15 or so games in the, in the playoffs. Fantastic. So uh, another, another thing that comes up a lot, and, and this is something that you hear that that really encompasses so many different things, but that's just, you know, plan and approach. And, and I think plan is kind of like your game plan that you went over throughout the game and then you're stepping up to the box and you're okay. Okay. This is my plan for this guy. Now approach, I think can change based on the situation that you come up in a game and that's just me. But whenever, again, and you, you're going to have, you're You have had guys that are 20 years old, they're coming up to the big leagues for the first time. They're getting all of the, they have all of these different emotions and they may or may not have, they may have been so successful. They haven't really had to have a plan or an approach whenever they're stepping into the box. And I, again, spitballing here, just assuming, uh, but how do you help with guys with that? Or even when a guy is struggling, how do you help them to really hone in on, on their plan, on their approach to, to this night's pitcher? We're going to beat this guy this, this night this is how we're going to do it, yada, yada, yada. Well, uh, I, you educate them as best you can with young players. Uh, they're, they're like, to your point, they're kind of wide-eyed and they want to do well. So it's going to, sometimes they're going to have to fall and to, on their face and learn. And no matter how much you coach them, the, the game is the best teacher. The game teaches you better than you and I can ever instruct them. And, and that goes for when I have an A swing and I click something, that feel that I get, you can't really mimic that in any drill in the cage. And so that, that game really taught them that feel. We would, I would talk about that with Mitch Moore all the time. The game will show you where you're at. As well, on the flip side, um, we have a young player who has, you know, we give him information. For example, I remember a situation where uh, we were facing a pitcher and this guy's fastball was, he threw like 60% fastball, 70% fastball, something like that but they were never strikes and the heat maps, there were, there were not a hittable option. He would throw a little lazy rinky dink slider in there. And that was the one that you had to sit on. So I remember talking to the player and go, Hey, don't go up there trying to hit this dude's fastball because nobody hits it. It's just got some funk on it. It's got some late life. It's got some giddy up to it that you just, for some reason you can't center it and, you know, sit on the breaking ball, sell out to the breaking ball. And, I, you know, next thing you know, he's 0 for 3 with three-week ground outs on fastballs. And so it's because he's so, he's so amped up because he's in the big leagues and he's getting a start that he just wants to hit it. And I'm used to hitting fastballs. In the minor leagues, I can hit anybody's fastball, I feel like. So forget this guy. Forget that game plan. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the game is so specialized now, and we know so much about pitchers that if we're not thinking along the lines of – of our best possible option to beat the guy, then we're going to get exposed. Mm-hmm. The game will expose you at, the, at that level. And um, so 
that would be an example of how a young player would just – and so it just takes time. And then after a while, you know, a few weeks, then the player's like, man, I need to, I need to start, you know, listening and paying attention and, tr- and, trying to, and trying to actually execute some of this and have an approach and having a plan in the game. So uh, sometimes players are able to pick up on that right away. I know Devers, you know, at first didn't really want to listen to Tim and I. And, you know, by 2019, midway through 2019, he was coming in looking at video himself and cross-referencing things with us and, and speaking really good English and talking about his game plan and, and, and having a chance to, to beat guys every night with what he thought, you know, was his best, best uh, chance to do that. So players evolve and learn. And our job, you know, and we thought for a while that, you know, De- Devers wasn't ever going to learn because it was just – he was kind of hard-headed and I just want to do things my way. And then he started realizing, hey, you know, I'm watching these other guys – and I know that if I can pick up just something, something little against this pitcher, then that may give me a chance to do damage tonight. And, and so he learned it. And, you know, he's a guy that's going to be a heck of a player for the rest of his career. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and he went from, you know, a really good prospect, one of the top prospects in baseball and then to, to an MVP candidate last year. And, and that's, uh, I, I think that that's, you know, looking from the outside in, I guess you could say that that's a big part of it. And another thing that comes up, which is interesting, and, and you hit on this a little while ago, is, is you're like, okay, cool. Uh, this guy throws 2% change-ups. And then you're seeing that he's just throwing them like every other pitch, like 50% in the, in the game. And, and so your game plan is, is just kind of like, okay, now we got to switch it, right, in the middle of a game, in like the third inning, and this guy's just dealing and whatever we're doing isn't working. What does that in-game and dugout conversation look like? Do you – you talk to it. Uh, do you get together as a like a, a small group of guys that are uh, that are starting? Do you go to each player and just say, "Hey, this isn't working today"? Um, but just how, how would you approach that? Whenever the game plan that you had, he's just kind of flipped the script, and maybe his ball's just running more today, or maybe he just he couldn't get a feel of a slider in the bullpen, so he just completely scrapped it. Uh, but how do, how do you approach that in the middle of a game? Well, in the middle of the game, uh, you're just kind of walking up and down the dugout and talking to the hitters and, and just letting them know, hey, listen, this is what's going on. Uh, he's, he's broke out his changeup. He's got a good feel for it tonight. He may have some good stick or something that he's getting, he's getting a better feel for it. Uh, I, I, sorry, I didn't say that. Um, but he, he's, he's using his changeup tonight, so we're going to have to get on the plate. Or, he, you know, we said he was going to pound us in, and he's doing nothing but throwing the ball away, and he's just living on the edge. And he's getting the calls from the umpire. So we got to get on the plate and we got to take it away from him. You know, so it's like, it's just kind of like I spoke about earlier, how Tim brought up the example of the offensive coordinator mm-hmm. is that, you know, that guy sitting up in the, in the booth with the headset on, he's got the eye in the sky and uh, he's seeing what's going on. And so we have to make adjustments. If we, if we were going to run the ball tonight, but they, they're stacking the line and we're going to have to throw the ball and just do some play action. So it's the same type of thing. The game is, it's fluid. The game plan is fluid. And so you have to be able to adjust on the fly. And that's, that's a skill that uh, as coaches that, you know, all of us need to have, and we can't be stubborn and to the point and, and, and be like, you know, well, this is what I said was going to happen and, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we have to realize we're in a collective group with the team and we're trying to win the game. And so we have to check our egos at the door and realize that they're doing something different. They might be out coaching us right now, but we're going to have to, and not executing, but we're going to have to flip the script and take that away from them. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and you, I think if, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, you had to coach third 
uh, for a little while. And what was it? 2019. Cause I think that there were that your third base coach had a surgery or, or something like that. So you're having to do both of those roles, which was really tough. How did you balance that? Yeah, I, I coached third for about 40 games, uh, which was a tremendous experience being able to, um, to coach third base in, in Fenway park and, and then as well in, in Houston in front of 45,000 people, I remember looking around going, wow, there's, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> That's cool. uh, I better not screw this up. But, um, no, that was a great experience. Seeing the game from that, from that point of view, that vantage point, seeing how fast the game is, uh, being on the field, uh, how explosive the players are, uh, how fast Xander Bogart's hands are and Raphael Devo's hands are, and, you know, from being 90 feet or less than 90 feet away from them at times. That was a that was a tremendous experience and um, something I'll never forget. But being able to uh, do both was difficult because uh, you know the pregame didn't change, uh, the preparation and all the work didn't change. Uh, the Red Sox brought in a guy to to basically take over for me during the game, and so I, I didn't have to go in there and and really flip as much and and do things like that during the game. Even though Tim and I would talk about you know the game plan and, and what was going on offensively throughout the game but um you know it was it was a challenge because you're you're having to prepare and you know do the hitting side from like you know noon to six o'clock basically and then you know then at that point you, you also have to study the outfielder's arms and know um you know who you can send and who you can against who and so all that preparation was added to it but uh, it was a lot of fun it was um you know it was you feel like that's the closest position as a coach to being able to play again is, uh, is coaching third base. And so I had done it in the minor leagues a lot as a manager. So I had mm-hmm. a lot of experience doing it and then, you know, doing it in the big leagues and knowing that you can do it in the big leagues was, was definitely cool. That's awesome. I love hearing that. So I've got a couple quick hitters for you and then we'll, we'll let you go and, and enjoy the rest of your day out in sunny Florida. But what All is right. something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited? Um, I was able to work as a college coach, um, for a short period of time recently. And I learned that the NCAA has lots of rules and that you can't just hit with players all day long. Like you have short periods of time where they come in and out of the cage. And before I knew what was going on, they'd be gone. And I'd be like, wait a minute, where are they going? Oh, well, they can only hit for this long. And I'm like, well, what kind of crap is that? Well, (laughs) there's all these rules in place. I had to learn a bunch of stuff. But I guess what, what challenged me as a coach was learning to be really super efficient. Um, you know what? You don't get these players all day long like you do in pro ball. You get them for short periods of time. They have class. They have study halls. They have, you know, practice. And there's only a certain amount of time we can have them, et cetera. And so if I'm trying to get them better, we're trying to win games because the head coach definitely wants to win. And every game is important in college baseball. It's not about development. I mean, you're trying to develop, but you also are trying to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, every night. And so in order to get these players better, we have to be super efficient. So I think uh, just learning as a group, um, as a group of coaches there and helping everybody work together to make our, our practices super efficient um, got me excited because I feel like now I thought I could get players better before, but now I feel like I know that I can put together a plan to get them better faster because I was forced to. So I think that was something that I'd learned um, just to use the same drill packages, but, and mental and mental and, and um, game planning type drills as well, because you, you're trying to teach on the fly with these young college kids. They don't know a ton. 
And so you're trying to get to learn game planning and I'm talking way above their head half the time. So we had to create drill packages and plans that were very super efficient yet covered everything that they needed to cover to make them better. Definitely. Definitely. I completely understand that. And you, you mentioned drill packages and some different things. And, and one of my favorite questions, because I think it's practical is what's something that you do and training that you know that your players are going to love. So that could be like a drill, a competition, just something that you could either do, you know, pregame, uh, you could, or if you want to talk about what you guys did at, at uh, in college, uh, of just something that you like that you're like, Hey, we need a little bit of a different thing today, or maybe this guy needs to pick me up. We're going to do this today. Um, I, I think that just doing sometimes, especially at that level, you know, professional players, big league players, they're really just set in their routines so that, you know, they, sometimes you do make it fun and may do a little uh, hitting competition, but I, I like, I like competitions, hitting on the field, um, you know, keeping score, either doing two teams, uh, keeping it fresh and then, you know, having external thoughts. So they're not thinking internally about their mechanics. So we're going to hit the ball to center field. You know, we're going to hit the ball to right field, whatever it is, run around third and field in a situational hitting game. Uh, doing things like that, it takes their mind off themselves and it puts their mind on execution. So it kind of keeps it fresh. So I like, uh, I like using the machine, maybe doing a situational hitting game off breaking balls, adding, a, you know, adding some, some difficulty to the drill, uh, but some, something of that nature. Fantastic. And, and I've been sitting here looking at your library. <laughs> so what, what are some of your favorite, what are some of your favorite books and resources for the coaches that are listening who just want to dig into something that is really, that'll help them to become a better coach and help their players? Uh, well, looking up there, uh, you know, I see, uh, I see Moneyball. I see uh, the book. I see baseball between the numbers. I see um, Earl Weaver's uh, book on strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my life in baseball by Ty Cobb, uh, damn Yankee, which is, is, uh, Billy Martin. So I'm kind of, a you know, a baseball historian. I probably don't study as much, um, uh, biomechanic types things. Uh, I, I like learning the history of the game and hearing the stories of those that came before me and how they went about it. It's kind of fascinating to me. So, um, I really don't ha- I mean, I like, um, uh, John Gordon's books uh, on, on you know, team and, and coaching and, and things like that. And um, Rod Olson, who is, uh, you should probably know, works with the Rangers organization mm-hmm. as a consultant and did with the Pirates. I've written some books that I really enjoy. Um, you know, I, I like learning about how to lead and how to coach and how to, um, you know, make ourselves better as coaches. For years, I, I didn't um, focus on getting myself better and uh, as a coach and, and in the last, you know, four or five, we try to focus on trying to find out information out there that's going to make me a better leader. And then learning about the mental game, um, uh, working with the Pirates organizations, I felt like um, for, for two years, I thought they had some of the best mental coaches in baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bernie Holiday and Hector and Tyson, and just, just these guys are great. And I was able to really grab a lot of nuggets from those guys that I used uh, when I was in Boston, I didn't don't feel like I would have been prepared, even though I thought I was as a coach. I thought I was ready without going to the, to Pittsburgh for a couple of years and learning from those guys about teaching the mental game. Um, I didn't think without that I wouldn't have been as effective as a coach as, as I was in Boston. So uh, mental stuff, any type of mental training, mental game stuff. Ken Revis obviously has uh, has some great books and some information out there. So 
uh, those are some resources that, that uh, I, I enjoy. Awesome. I love it. And so I'm, I'm going to just link your Twitter account down below in the, in the contact section, but I'm going to open Perfect. up the mic for you, Andy. I, I, man, I can't tell you how, how awesome it was to, to get to hear you today and, and to get to spend some time with you. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, I just um, hang in there. Uh, it's a tough time that we're all in as, as baseball people. Uh, you know, from a 16-year-old son I have who's practicing every day, wanting to go play summer ball and waiting for that to open up to uh, major league coaches I know that are chomping at the bit in players. And then there's minor league coaches that are getting furloughed, that, are, that grinded for a long time, and other ones that are getting pay cut. And, and so it's just it's a tough time for everybody in the game. Uh, hang in there. The game will open up. And then in the meantime, try to make yourself better. Try to find, you know, time every day to, to improve yourself as a coach, improve yourself as a person. Uh, and then, you know, spend as much time as you can with those that you love, because at some point uh, the game will call us all back to duty and, and we'll be away. And, and that time away is obviously tough on, uh, on the people that are closest to us. So enjoy the time. And uh, again, thank you again for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which could include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.